Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So glad you're here today. Please take out your Bibles and turn in them to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 165 in the back, and you would be at 2 Timothy. There was an ad in the London newspaper, and it said this, men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition in case of success. And thousands of men responded to that ad. It was signed by the noted Arctic explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. And that's what really made the difference because they were drawn to follow Shackleton. You know, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this. Men and women wanted for difficult task of helping to build my church. You will often be misunderstood. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, and your full reward will not come till after all your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, and even your life. Well, Jesus Christ is the greatest leader and adventurer ever, far beyond Sir Ernest Shackleton. And helping to build the church of Jesus Christ is the greatest task that we could give our life to. Now, for those who are doing that, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verse 12, he says this, that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All will experience suffering. You know, when you, when you talk about suffering biblically, there are really two kinds of suffering that are addressed in the Bible. The first one we might call regular suffering. It's, it's suffering that we experience because we're human beings. It refers to those daily hardships and those difficulties that we experience. Just the difficulty of getting older. It's all part of regular suffering. But there's also in the Bible, it talks about what we might call gospel suffering. This is suffering that we experience because we are a follower of Jesus, because we stand up for Christ, because we stand up for the truth and for the gospel. And here's what happens, I think, commonly when we face gospel suffering. We have this tendency in the face of that to begin to pull back and to begin to lose some of our courage. You know, when you talk about suffering as a follower of Jesus, that suffering occurs on a spectrum. There's a huge spectrum. On one hand, you have this spectrum where the result, perhaps, of that kind of suffering might mean that your life could be threatened or your life would be taken. That's been true in the past. You know, the story of William Tyndale is a very interesting one. He labored tirelessly to put in the hands of the people an English Bible that people could understand in their own language. And he eventually did, indeed, print the first English New Testament 
despite threats to execute anyone who might own a non-Latin language Bible. And after suffering shipwreck and loss of manuscripts and exile and pursuit by secret agents and betrayal by a friend, Tyndale was captured, strangled, and his dead body burned at the stake. It's, It's amazing how easy it is to forget the price that was paid to give us a Bible in our own language. You can have that kind of suffering where life is threatened. Um, That was true in the past. It's true right now today. I was reading a story of a man named Ishtiak, a Christian man who went on a bus tour into the country of Pakistan, and the bus stopped on the side of the road, and Ishtiak walked up to a tea booth and picked up a bag of tea, and just as he was preparing to pay for the tea, the owner of the booth yelled at him to put down the tea. And he was rather shocked at that, confused about what was going on, and he complied. And then he realized that the owner was pointing to a sign. And that sign said, if you are not a Muslim, you must confess your belief before you can buy anything. And as Ishtiak read the sign, the owner noticed that Ishtiak was wearing a cross around his neck, and he began to call out for other people, and a total of 14 men ran over, and they began hurling stones at Ishtiak, and they beat him with iron rods and clubs, and they stabbed him multiple times with kitchen knives as he pleaded for mercy. Some of the others who'd been on the bus tour rushed over to help Ishtiak and were finally able to pull the attackers off of him, and they rushed him to the intensive care unit there. But it was, it was too late, and the doctors said that Ishtiak died from extensive internal and external injuries, brain damage, and a fractured skull. When you talk about gospel suffering, it can happen to us on a spectrum. You have one end of the spectrum. Maybe another end of the spectrum doesn't result in your life being threatened or taken, but maybe it results in your testimony being weakened. This is where we have the pressure the fear of being ridiculed, the fear of being criticized, the fear of being rejected. And so what happens is we just just pull back and we go quiet. Now, in our culture here in America today, someday we may be at that first end of the spectrum of of suffering. But for now, and mostly in our culture, we're on this other end, the second end, where we, we feel this pressure, and so we just kind of pull back. I want to share with you some contemporary signs of a crisis in courage for believers. And this can be true of a church. This is true of us as individuals. The first sign is this, that we seek to blend in with the culture. I think I'll just blend in with the culture at school, on the campus, at the workplace, or even maybe in my extended family. I'm just going to blend in. Secondly, we choose to live a lower-profile life. I mean, I'm going to go low profile here. I don't want to stir up some criticism. I don't want to invite any opposition. Then a third sign of a crisis in courage is that we decide not to speak up about what is right and true. You know, the subject matter of things like abortion, same-sex issues. Whoa, I'm not going to talk about that. I don't want to be falsely accused. I don't want my motives being questioned. 
And then a fourth sign of a crisis in courage is that we keep silent about our relationship with Christ. I don't want people laughing at me and and ridiculing me. And when you look at at all of those signs, you know, Timothy was feeling that and more. And as Paul writes this second letter to him, he gives to Timothy straightforward counsel. And it's straightforward counsel not only for Timothy, but also for us. If you have your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 1, I want to read verses 8 to 12, and I would invite you to follow along in your Bible as I'm reading what Paul conveys to Timothy. He says in verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, last week, as we began our our new study that we've entitled Maintaining Spiritual Traction in a Shifting Culture, we took a closer look, we zoomed in a little bit on the Apostle Paul. And and you might remember that the Apostle Paul was one of those high-level doer type guys. He was a hard driver in his personality. He was a natural-born leader. It was very obvious even before he came to know Christ. He was an overtly expressive individual, and he was a mentor to Timothy. I find it fascinating. Here you have two spiritual leaders, Paul and Timothy, and they have such different personalities. You know, Timothy was considerably younger than Paul. Five years before this letter was written, when he wrote the letter of 1 Timothy in chapter 4, verse 12, he says there to Timothy, hey, let no one look down on your youthfulness, Timothy. You're young, but don't let that stop you. And as he writes this letter in chapter 4 and verse 22, he says to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Timothy was definitely younger than Paul. Had a different personality type. Timothy seems to be someone who had a more tender-hearted personality. Look at chapter 1 and verse 4. Paul says to Timothy, I'm longing to see you even as I recall your tears. I remember how tender-hearted you were, Timothy, when we had to go our separate ways and, and tears came down your face. It appears that Timothy's personality was more introverted, more reserved. Thus, you have statements like verse 7 when he says to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity. We also know that his health wasn't particularly robust. 
And that's actually understating the case. We learn from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, when Paul says to Timothy, you need to take some wine for your stomach, and then he adds this little phrase, and for your frequent ailments. So Timothy and Paul were very different people. But isn't it encouraging that faithfulness in ministry goes beyond personality? doesn't make any difference if you're one of those type A, hard driver people, or whether you're just a little more introverted and reserved, maybe a little more tenderhearted. God can use you. Now, there are some main points in verses 8 to 12 that Paul wishes to communicate to Timothy and to us today. And here are the three main points. Number one, there's going to be a call to stand strong in the face of suffering. We're going to see that in verse 8. The second main point that he wants to make is that courageous faith is energized by God's amazing grace in salvation. We're going to see that in verses 9, 10, and 11. And then the third main point he's going to make today is that God won't let you down. We're going to see that in verse 12. So let's look at these three main points that Paul wishes to make that he wrote so many hundred years ago, which were just as pertinent for you and me today. Let's begin by looking at the call to stand strong in the face of suffering. Notice verse 8 begins with the word, therefore. It points back to the previous verse. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed. And that little directive there is structured in such a way in the original language. I want you to understand that he was not saying to Timothy, hey, stop being ashamed. He was basically saying, don't let yourself be ashamed. Don't let yourself be embarrassed. Do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. You know, you read that, and I find it fascinating. There's just times when you need to slow down for a moment. Who was Paul really a prisoner of? Remember from last week? He's a prisoner of the Roman government. He is really a prisoner of Nero. But that's not what he says. He says, don't be ashamed of the Lord or of me, the Lord's prisoner. It gives us real insight into Paul's everyday perspective. He, he basically knew he was in jail. He knew that the government had put him there, that Nero was behind all of that. But he said, basically, I'm the Lord's prisoner. His attitude was, I am in this situation, this sticky spot, by the decree of the king of kings. Now, he knew that God is not the source of evil and injustice, but he still rules over all of that. And there seems to be this calmness, this restedness, and that no matter what his situation was, it was part of the plan and the providence of God. And there's some times when we're in sticky situations when we need to remember that too. That we're always there by the plan and providence of God. 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord of, or of me, his prisoner. But he says, but join with me. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. Be ready to suffer with me. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Again, the New Living Translation says, you do this with the strength that God gives you. And it's interesting, historically, what happened to Timothy. At some point, Timothy also was arrested. We learn about that from the book of Hebrews and the 13th chapter and verse 23, because it refers to Timothy being arrested. And we know that the book of Hebrews was written within two years of 2 Timothy. So sometime from when this letter came to him, and within two years, Timothy himself had been arrested. Now, we may not face that kind of persecution, you know, where we're in danger of, of arrest or of death. But we do, even in this culture, have to stand strong in the face of the pressure that can come to us, the pressure that might result in ridicule or criticism or false accusation where we just decide we're going to pull back. I'm, I'm pulling back. I'm going quiet in this situation. Now, what can help someone to stand strong? You see, he's given them this call, stand strong in the face of the pressure. But what really helps you to do that? Well, that leads to the second point that he wants to make, and that is that courageous faith is energized by God's amazing grace in salvation. You know, when I was studying through this passage, it's, it's just fascinating to me the detail that he goes into in verses 9 and 10. And, you know, part of you wants to say, wait a minute, now, don't you understand these are followers of Jesus? These are people who trusted in him as Savior. Those of us who are reading this, do we really need to go into this kind of detail? I mean, we already know this, that he saved us and called us with a holy calling. He did it not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. That's old news in a sense to us, isn't it? But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, and he abolished death, and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't this just old news? Why is it here? Why does he go into that kind of detail for us who know the gospel message? I think the reason is that sometimes we lose sight of the wonder of the gospel message. You know, author Philip Yancey visited Yellowstone National Park, and he went to a restaurant there that had these large windows looking out on Old Faithful. And he was noticing something while he was sitting there having lunch, that whenever the famous geyser would erupt, he noticed that those who were there eating were just drawn in complete wonder to the sight. And every time it happened, they were just sort of in awe. But he also noticed that the servers in the restaurant, the wait staff, had a completely different reaction. The geyser would go off and they would never even glance over. They wouldn't even look because it no longer really captured their attention. They weren't feeling any awe. You see, they had lost sight of the wonder. And I think the same thing can happen to me and to you. 
And what we need to do, Paul's saying, especially when we're facing some opposition and some pressure, is we need to revel again in the gospel message. So he goes into some detail. He talked talking about the gospel, which is according to the power of God, which has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You know, just think about that one phrase. He saved us, he delivered us, he rescued us and called us with a holy calling. I like the way Charles Ray put it. He says, it's like the president asking a person who never went beyond third grade to be secretary of education. That happened, you would go, we're undeserving. And yet he's still gonna let us do that anyway. And the same thing is true in salvation. We're completely undeserving of being called with a holy calling. And yet he lets us experience that anyway. He saved us, verse 9, and called us with a holy calling. And it was not according to our works. We didn't earn it. We didn't just finally become good enough that now you get into the family of God. He did it, rather, according to his own purpose and grace. You know, one thing that you can say about grace is that grace is unforeseen, it's unexpected, it's completely undeserved. And Marianne Bird, in her book entitled The Whisper Test, expressed how she experienced grace that was unforeseen, unexpected, and undeserved. This is what she writes. I love this story. She writes, I grew up knowing that I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to other people. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. When classmates asked, what happened to your lip? I'd tell them that I had fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. And annually, we had a hearing test. And Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher, whoever that would be, would be sitting at her desk and would whisper something, and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue. Or, do you have new shoes? And I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. See, that's unforeseen, unexpected, undeserved grace by God. And that's what he does in salvation. He basically leans forward and he says, 
I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. And he says that to people who have ugly rebellion in their soul. Ugly rebellion that had earned us hell. And our marred hearts had earned us eternal torment. But God comes along with his amazing grace, his grace that is unforeseen, unexpected, and yes, incredibly undeserved. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Reminds me of one of my favorite passages, a few books to the left in your Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. I love this section of Scripture. It says, I'm going to read verses 4 to 8 of Ephesians 1. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us and the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. You know, men and women, the whole point of all of that is that is energizing when we are reasserting and returning around the wonder of all this. It is energizing to us. And he goes on to say back in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10, it's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. It's interesting. In the New Testament, when it usually talks about Jesus appearing, it's generally referring to his second coming when he comes in judgment back to this world. But here, he's referring to the first coming of Jesus when Jesus came to this planet to die for you and for me. It's now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And then there's this little phrase, three words in our English Bible, who abolished death. Now, when I'm doing Bible study, there's certain phrases that just catch my attention, and that was one of them. In fact, I'm drawn to that phrase like a fly to light. He abolished death. What does that really mean? That's presented as a past event. I mean, how does all of that work? I mean, I'm thinking to myself, he abolished death, well, but I'm still going to die. You're still going to die. What does this mean, he, he abolished death? The New Living Translation translates it this way. He broke the power of death. And the voice translates it, he wiped out death through his resurrection. I'm going to zoom in for a moment on that phrase, he abolished death. The word, the verb that is translated abolished is the word in the original language, katargeo, K-A-T-A-R-G-E-O, katargeo. And katargeo has two different meanings to the word, depending upon the context 
One is that katargeo means to render something ineffective, to render it powerless, to render it unproductive. Another meaning to katargeo is to bring something to an end, to destroy it, to annihilate it, to abolish it. And in my opinion, here, when Paul says that Jesus, katargeo, abolished death, he had in mind the first meaning that Jesus rendered death for a believer ineffective, powerless, and unproductive. See, death for us hasn't been completely annihilated yet. But because we know Christ, and because he was resurrected from the dead, the power of death has been broken. The power of death has been drained of its terrors. It doesn't matter what James Bond movie you watch, but in all James Bond movies, somewhere along the line in the movie, James Bond is going to disarm a bomb, right? You're going to see it happen. What's interesting is that when James Bond disarms a bomb, the bomb is not gone, the bomb is still present, but it Its destructive power isn't there any longer because it's been disarmed. That's the sense when it says that Jesus in the past has rendered death ineffective. It's powerless. It's unproductive. That's why as as a believer in Jesus Christ, death is pictured in the New Testament as falling asleep in Jesus in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 14. Death for a follower of Jesus in the New Testament in Philippians 1.23 is pictured as just the doorway to go and to be with Christ. You know, Jesus said this. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, there has to be that trust in him, will live even if he dies. Because I already rendered death ineffective and unproductive. See, because he was raised from the dead, we will be raised from the dead. For a believer, death is not an end of the road. It's just a bend in the road. And no matter what we may face or what we may be going through, we're going to win in the end. It's guaranteed to be true. Christ Jesus, he says in verse 10, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It shows us the way to eternal life. Now, I was doing a little bit of a study on this and thinking my way through it. There's a past sense of how katar geo has affected death, but there's also going to be a future event that's coming. And you can just jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, because it talks about there how that Christ must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And it says, the last enemy that will be abolished, katargeo, is death. A future event. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it's talking about the second meaning of this word. While he's already rendered death ineffective and unproductive, for a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a day coming when he is going to put it in, he is going to destroy it, he's going to annihilate it, he's going to abolish it. In fact, it's recorded for us in the Bible. 
in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, where death ends up being tossed into the lake of fire. Now, all of this, you see, this truth is very energizing when we're facing opposition and pressure in everyday life. And, and, and Paul found that very, very much energizing. He goes on to say in verse 11, for which all of these things, the gospel and all that Christ has done for us, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. He said, I was an announcer and an establisher and a perpetuator of it. It's motivating to me. So we have this call to stand strong. How do we do that? Well, courageous faith is energized by God's amazing grace and salvation. The third main point he wants to make to us is that God won't let you down. And he says that with a bang in verse 12. He says, for this reason, because of the gospel, I also suffer these things. This is why I'm suffering in prison. I understand that. But then he begins to make a whole series of statements in the rest of verse 12. A whole series of statements where the verb forms are what we call in the original Greek language perfect tenses. A perfect tense talks about something that's true at that point in time, but the effect continues on. And he's going to make this over and over, this kind of statement. It's true right now in my life, and that effect is going to continue on. Notice what he says. He says, I am not ashamed, perfect tense. It's true right now in this point of time, and that effect continues on. I am not ashamed, for I know, perfect tense, true in a point of time, and the effect continues on. For I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, perfect tense, true in a point of time, and the effect continues on. Isn't it interesting what he says here? I know whom I have believed. This is what's so exciting about biblical Christianity. It's not about a list of rules. It's not about a religious system. It's about a person, the living Savior himself. I am not ashamed, perfect tense, for I know, perfect tense, whom I have believed, perfect tense, and I am convinced, perfect tense, true in a point of time, and the effect continues on, that he is able. You might underline, if you mark in your Bible, underline those three words. He is able. He is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. That little phrase of entrustment is a legal term of the day. When you would give something for safekeeping. And Paul is saying, I know I'm suffering these things, but I'm not ashamed. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. I'm entrusting my soul. I'm entrusting my life. I'm entrusting my destiny. I have put all of those things in his care, in his hands. And really what Paul is saying is that his hands are big hands, and his hands are steady hands, and his hands are secure hands. I am not ashamed, perfect tense, for I know, perfect tense, whom I have believed, perfect tense, and I am convinced, perfect tense, that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Until that day, he greets me on the other side of death. Until that day when I walk into the presence of the heavenly 
kingdom. What he's really saying here is no matter what we may be experiencing in terms of this gospel suffering, this pressure that comes upon us because we're followers of Jesus, he's saying God has our back. He will vindicate us. We are on the winning team. And when you begin to think that way, it is energizing, you see. Whether you are suffering on the severe end, where there might be jail or torture or death, or whether you're suffering more on the intimidation end, when there can be concern for the criticism and the ostracizing and the, and the ridicule. Do you see what Paul is saying to you and to me right here in these verses? He's saying basically this, don't seek to merely blend in with the culture. Don't choose just to live a lower profile life. Don't decide not to speak up for what is right and true. Don't keep silent about your relationship with Christ. Instead, be courageous. You know, it is amazing as believers in this culture what we can learn from believers in other cultures. And I came across this this statement by a young spiritual leader in Zimbabwe, Africa. I think we can learn from this guy. This is what he says. He says, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit's power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, and preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for the living book, the way that it addresses where we live in everyday life. And we know that we face this opposition that's in the world. It comes from people. It, it comes from the enemy. We don't know what kind of suffering we may face, even in the years ahead. It doesn't make any difference because you are the one. We're just so grateful for the truth that you have shared with us today and how we can find courage and be energized spiritually as we just remember all the details of this gospel message, the things that you have accomplished on our behalf. We're so grateful that the Savior, Katar Geo, has dealt with death, rendering it ineffective and unproductive now for us as believers, but one day, he's going to abolish and annihilate the whole thing. What a joy it is to know a Savior like that. And we would pray that our confidence would be the confidence that Paul describes there in verse 12. That we're not ashamed because we know whom we have believed. We are convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that very day when I see him face to face. May we be men and women of courage 
because of how great you are and our Savior is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.